Greetings, folks. My name is Tawfiq Haddad. I'm the director of the Kenyan Institute, which is the Council for British Research in the Levant's Jerusalem branch. Let's wait just a little moment before uh, we actually start this. Uh, uh, we're waiting for attendance to pick up, but uh, maybe we take advantage of the situation to provide some uh, uh, background and notes on what we're about to see. The webinar that we are about to host is entitled Eastern Christianity in Syria and Palestine uh, and European Cultural Diplomacy from 1860 to 1948, A Connected History. This webinar has people joining it from all over the world today. We had over 160 different people sign up for this. Hopefully uh, most of those can attend today. Uh, the Council for British Research in the Levant is an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct, support and promote humanities and social science research on the Levant. And we are part of the British Academy's uh, one of seven different British international research institutes uh, that works, uh, uh, that have been around for uh, more than a hundred years, many of them including our own organization. I'm speaking to you from the Kenyan Institute, which used to be the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem. Uh, that was consolidated together with the British Institute in Amman under the aegis of the Council of British Research in the Levant today. So we have two different local uh, research organizations, one in Jerusalem, the Kenyan Institute and the British Institute in Amman. In normal times, we organize a regular program of lectures in the UK and at our institutes, and we're very pleased to bring a new version of these events to you today in the form of this webinar. Now, we're very excited to have this event today, uh, which uh, is uh, kind of a publicity event to uh, raise attention to the latest edition of our uh, one of our two journals uh, called Contemporary Levant, in which the subject of Eastern Christianity in Syria and Palestine is being addressed. Uh, in a few moments, I will hand off uh, to the chief editor, uh, Dr. Sarah Irving, to, who will host today's event. Uh, but before I do that, uh, I wanted to take advantage of the situation to uh, say a few words about uh, the situation in Jerusalem today because uh, it is impossible to actually not say anything about the situation in Jerusalem. And we could not simply act as though nothing is happening today uh, in the city in which we work, in, in which we are uh, directly affected. Uh, if I'm to be honest, uh, there was a, uh, a, a uh, internal discussion in the organization whether we were actually going to continue with this webinar today, given the local circumstances. But we decided to move forward because we do not want to turn a blind, uh, we wanted to continue our work and assert our work in East Jerusalem, as we have been doing for the past hundred years. Uh, but we also did wanted to uh, take the opportunity to say a few things about the situation here in Jerusalem, because it is all over the news and uh, we felt strongly that uh, it was not a moment to be silent. The Kenyan Institute is located in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. It has been here for more than 50 years. We've acted as a hub for scholarly activity for UK and local scholars and the wider public in our vicinity, 
providing a forum for academic debate, independence of thought and exchange of political, cultural and religious boundaries throughout these years. Less than 150 meters from where this webinar is taking place, uh, there are uh, a lot of the political struggles which started the, the recent uh, situation here in Jerusalem emerged, namely, uh, there are attempts to evict four different families in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood who have, uh, these families have exhausted their legal appeals. These are four of uh, upwards of 20 other families who ha have similar appeals. And this is not the first wave of evictions. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, these families are refugee families built, living in the United Nations, built homes in the 50s with, together with the Jordanian government. Were this webinar to have taken place yesterday, uh, it would have been a different scene. Uh, the streets of Jerusalem have been a mess. Uh, demonstrations have been taking place almost on a daily basis, both day and night. The streets of Jerusalem smell of skunk water. The roads have been closed. Israeli special forces have been making arrests. Uh, armed settlers have been walking through the neighborhood and uh, it has directly affected the work of the Kenyan Institute as well as that of its staff. Uh, beyond these direct details, I think it's important to note that we as academics, we are not politicians, but we are academics. And in, uh, by saying that, uh, we are in a unique position, both as academics located in Sheikh Jarrah, to have been observers and analysts of the situation for a long time, witnessing the incremental deterioration of the situation in Jerusalem and in this neighborhood in particular. We feel it's important to state that, uh, we, uh, that to, to issue a call that uh, the situation has become in many respects intolerable and that the larger model and approach of conflict management in the occupied territories today has proven itself no longer sustainable. At, uh, and there's a need for uh, a fresh look at the situation, which introduces the basic principles of human rights and international law here. That is formally my position as the director of the Kenyan Institute, the Council for British Research in the Levant intends to issue a statement in the next 24 hours around these events. We did not want to be uh, uh, part of the occasional accusation that academics exist in their ivory tower to not say something in a moment like this is also to say something. So uh, let this uh, be uh, somewhat of a clarion call to raise attention for the need for addressing the situation here in a just and equitable manner. I will, that, that concludes what I wanted to say about the situation in Jerusalem. I would like to hand off soon enough to Sarah Irving, Dr. Sarah Irving, who will take over the webinar but before I do so, I'll just put out a few notes. Uh, this is a Zoom webinar. We ask you to uh, put your questions in uh, the question and answer function at the bottom of your screens. Today's event is actually being remarkably uh, conducted across six different countries today. Uh, Amsterdam, uh, Holland, Paris, Greece, London, Cyprus, uh, and the occupied territories. I feel I might have left one out, but that's all right. I'll leave it to, to Sarah to uh, actually do the formal introductions about the webinar. Uh, and I'll come in at the end to sign off. Uh, check us out though at our website, www.cbrl.org.
www.ac.uk. Sign up for more webinars and check out what we're doing. Thank you. Take it away, Sarah. Good afternoon. Um, and thank you all for attending. Thank you particularly to Tofik for those words. Um, we're here specifically to discuss and to present um, the newest issue of Contemporary Levant. Um, I'm the editor of the journal. We will be speaking to the two editors of the special issue itself and to two of the uh, people who have contributed um, fascinating papers uh, to this um, very rich, informative and valuable collection of articles. Um, I think it is also though worth bearing in mind that although sometimes, um, as Tolfiq mentioned, there is the accusation that uh, academia and academic articles are an ivory tower. Um, one of the things that I think is most fascinating and, and exciting about this particular issue of the journal is the huge range of places from which um, it draws work, the huge range of archives in different languages um, on which the authors draw, um, and the way in which it uh, enriches and adds, adds granularity to our understanding of the Levant region, its place in uh, geopolitics at one extreme um, of, the, of the whole region um, and, and the way in which various imperialisms and colonialisms have impacted on it for over 200 years. Um, and also um, the ways in which some of the papers in the collection also at the kind of other extreme of, of, of the focus um, look to the micro scale experiences of individual people from Palestine and other parts of the Levant region um, and their experiences of being within the different layers of cultural, social, economic, political, historical change that they experienced. The name of the uh, special issue is Eastern Christianity in Syria and Palestine and European Cultural Diplomacy, 1860 to 1948. Um, it's uh, the editorial of the uh, issue is available um, open access uh, on the journal's website on, on Taylor and Francis. Um, so that's available to download for anybody. Um, if anybody else has problems accessing uh, articles from the journal, you're more than welcome to contact me on the Contemporary Levant email address um, and I will try and help with that. Um, in terms of how the uh, seminar is going to run for the next half an hour or so, each of the four speakers will be talking for um, around five minutes each, just to give a, an impression of the main themes that they want to draw out um, about their papers. Um, I will introduce each of them as they speak, and then we will take questions after all four um, of these of these kind of mini talks. As Tofik mentioned, if you have questions, please put them in the Q&A. 
Um, and uh, Sophia and myself will collect them up. And if there are some that, for instance, speak to similar themes, then we, we may bunch them together. Um, but um, yes, if you could use the Q&A function, um, we'd be very grateful. Uh, I won't be reading out full-length biographies of all of the speakers. Um, I will just be giving you a bit, little bit of an idea of who they are and what their profile is. I will post the link for all of the full biographies in the chat. Um, and I will also probably post some other links in the chat as we go along. So do keep an eye on that um, for more information on some of our speakers and their publications. So having said all that, we'll be starting off with um, the uh, one of the two uh, editors of this special issue, um, Dr. Karen Sanchez-Samara who is an associate professor at Leiden University. She's also the principal investigator of the project Crossroads, European Cultural Diplomacy and Arab Christians in Mandate Palestine, a Connected History, 1920 to 1950. Um, and this special issue comes out of this project and, and her wider work, particularly around the social and cultural histories of um, Christian populations in the, man, in the mandates, um, both Anglophone and Francophone. Um, Dr. Sanchez is the author and editor of uh, a vast list of publications. Uh, so I'm not going to read them all out, but what I am going to do is post links to two of the most recent. These are edited collections, the first entitled European Cultural Diplomacy and Arabs Christians in Palestine, 1918 to 1948, between contention and connection. Uh, and the second is not quite out yet, but will be soon. And that's Imaging and Imagining Palestine, Photography, Modernity in the Biblical Lens, 1980 to 19, 1918 to 1948. Both of these books are completely open access uh, which means that they are free to download either by chapter or by um, uh, full book um, as a PDF. So do avail yourselves of that opportunity using the links that I'll be putting up. Um, while I'm doing that, Karen, please take it away. Thank you very much for um, the special issue, the hard work and uh, the adventure during the pandemic that it represented. Uh, our intention was to tell the story of Palestine and Syria in transition, adopting a micro-global uh, historical approach. And I think uh, that's important uh, to know because we noticed coming from very uh, various backgrounds that some um, studies in several languages, among them Greek, Russian, Arabic, were missing in Palestine. And these um, archival gaps needed also to be filled. So this is how we started. As Sarah mentioned, it's part of the Crossroad project. Uh, we were about to finish imagining and imagining Palestine. We had been working on photography and we absolutely wanted to cover more Melkite population of Palestine and Syria. And it all started with few archives we uh, encountered. So I will just say a few words about our methodology, the type of archives and the type of approach 
we adopted. Before I leave the floor to Costas to tell you more about the different papers. Um, we wanted to show via this cultural approach all the processes of appropriation, domination, uh, cooperation at different level. This was very clear for us from the very beginning that we needed uh, an approach uh, playing between micro, meso, institutional level and uh, macro to get this mechanism of change in the cultural lives of uh, Palestine and Syria. Um, this was very much also uh, our idea when we went uh, and we all spent uh, time either in Greece or in Russia or in, in uh, Jerusalem and Palestine. We wanted to fill some of the archival main uh, gaps in the sense that we had the impression local archives were underrepresented because also a problem of uh, access. So the conference never took place in Thessaloniki due to COVID, but we wanted to show the broader connection and we started to work online with colleagues uh, from Greece, uh, Russia, Austria, and the idea to um, show the broader connection of these Palestinian and Syrian population quickly uh, appeared. Why that? The idea was to deprovincialize uh, the Palestinian history and to offer keys about this very local event and history to be understood with uh, more background to navigate at a different scale. If we take, for example, the Armenian uh, compound and the change due to the genocide, we quickly saw with Raymond Kevorkian, who did the article on Armenian uh, refugees and orphans in Jerusalem at that time, that you see all the scales and the impacts in Jerusalem, in the city itself, and on the different uh, type of uh, communities. Later on, we also wanted to cover the different layers of identification actors uh, were having at that time through this uh, cultural lens. Why? I would say extremely quickly, um, this idea of uh, dialogue, welding power through uh, cultural lenses via the practices, uh, the idea, come with the idea that we need to understand the notion of exchange influence um, and the working of such cultural and religious crossroad um, that were sometimes uh, encounters do or do not sometimes uh, take place, uh, request from us that we are aware of processes of subversions. So um, to reveal unknown episodes uh, and the agencies uh, were one of our um, most present, I would say, uh, motivation for the special issue. 
why this period and why this idea to deprovincialize? Uh, we had uh, previously in the volume you see um, in the question and answer uh, notice the, the mobility of uh, these cultural ideas, the increased literacy of people at that time, uh, spread of uh, new media and the different impact on language agenda. So we included our project in this uh, transnational idea of grasping what was going on uh, between these uh, two regions. I will finish saying that this idea of influence uh, in Palestine on these mainly in this special issue, uh, Melkite Orthodox and Syriac uh, population and the, the power uh, levered by these cultural influences on both sides um, has been always approach via a comparative approach that's extremely important so uh, these communities in within the society of that time their muslim and their uh, jewish peers and also connected in the sense that even if one article uh, was based like uh, dimitrios in greek archives we did uh, exchange on the type of archives covering the same uh, topic and questions to see if we could grasp the whole idea of these uh, moments of uh, connections. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Um, we'll now hear from the other editor of the special issue of the journal. Um, Konstantinos uh, Papastathis is assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. He also participates in the Crossroads Project at Leiden University, um, along with Karen, uh, and his main scientific interests involve the fields of politics, religion, and Middle Eastern studies. Um, as I mentioned, you can read his uh, more full biography, um, including um, links to a number of articles uh, on the uh, link that I put into the chat field. Uh, Kostas, please. Well, uh, thank you, Sarah. First of all, I would like uh, to thank the, um, the organizers of this event uh, for giving us the opportunity uh, to present our work, as well as, of course, the general contemporary event. Um, I will speak about, I will uh, present, uh, I will say some words actually for uh, the special issue and uh, then I will speak about my contribution. Uh, so, um, the special issue contains papers uh, of uh, concerning the Eastern and Oriental Christianity, uh, particularly the, the Greek Orthodox, uh, the Syriac, the Armenian, and the Melkite uh, Church uh, of Syria and Palestine. Uh, Sarah Irving, uh, um, Dimitris Kondogiorgis, uh, uh, Laura Gerd, uh, Sotiris Russos, Maria Litina, uh, Angelos Dalahanis, 
Shadiak Shus, Raymond Kevorkian and Bernhard Kroninger have uh, contributed uh, to this special issue and myself uh, have contributed to this special issue. In particular, uh, Maria Litina uh, has written a paper on uh, the uh, follows the career of uh, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch Cyril uh, II in the in late 19th century or mid 19th century, um, and uh, his uh, dethronement, his deposition from uh, uh, from his seat due to his support uh, to uh, the Bulgarian Exarchate. Um, it's very interesting because. Uh, it is also related to the uh, Arab Orthodox uh, uh, cause uh, to have a say, uh, to participate in the administration of the Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem. Uh, then uh, the second contribution is by Sadia Aksus, uh, who studies uh, the relationship between uh, the, <coughs> the Russian uh, missionary education, uh, educational enterprise in Palestine and uh, the leaders of uh, the Arab Nahda. Um, so it is very interesting because uh, the author uh, based her work uh, on uh, Palestine archival sources. Uh, and uh, this is extremely important because, as far as I know, uh, there are no uh, 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 contributions papers uh, on uh, the Palestine perspective of this uh, of the Russian uh, educational enterprise. Um, Laura Gert and uh, Dimitris Kodejoros will speak uh, about their papers, of course. Uh, Sotiris Russos. Uh, has contributed a chapter on uh, uh, the um, survival strategies, as he calls it, as he called uh, it, uh, which were developed by various uh, Christian communities uh, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and uh, he proposes that actually these were five and um, uh, he uh, describes the development, uh, his, the historical development of these uh, survival strategies and uh, whether uh, their application and uh, whether these were effective or not. <clears throat> uh, Bernhard Kroneger um, deals with the Melkite Church uh, during the the colonial period and uh, putting emphasis on uh, the debate between the Latini Latinization and the or the Arabization of the community. Uh, so his paper focuses on the intervention uh, by the Holy See uh, in uh, the Melkite uh, Church in Syria, Palestine, and uh, Egypt. Uh, this is uh, an important contribution uh, because um, uh, I, it provides new insights uh, in, uh, about the relation of the Holy See 
and uh, uh, and uh, the Melkite uh, Church, uh, and uh, within the context, within the historical context uh, of uh, the of the colonization period, um, the Lahanis Angelos. Um, uh, examines uh, the his paper is not so much related to Christianity, but uh, directly at least. But uh, uh, he examines the um, the history of the Greek Ladies Club uh, of Jerusalem uh, in late Mandate period, and. Uh, he, he has worked on uh, archives uh, of, of the community, uh, which is very important. And uh, he, um, he examines the, the social activities and the cultural activities of, of, this, uh, of this club and uh, its relation to, uh, to the patriarchate as well, whether there existed a relation with the Orthodox patriarchate, as well as its relation to the Arab Orthodox community in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, last but not least, uh, Sarah Irving wrote a paper on the Syriac uh, Orthodox community. Uh, and uh, in, in relation to the uh, to the discovery of the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls, and uh, she examines the ways in which uh, the parts uh, they played were informed by their status as Christians uh, and uh, in in late Mandate period. Uh, maybe she could uh, also say a few words about uh, about uh, her paper, uh, because probably she will uh, describe and give a, a better answer than uh, than myself. As far as I am concerned, uh, a, my paper deals uh, with uh, the um, uh, Jerusalem uh, Orthodox Patriarchate. Uh, within the period, uh, within the transition period from the Ottoman rule to the British mandate. Um, particularly, I, I attempt to describe the um, uh, patriarchal crisis within 1917 to 1918, when a group of um, Orthodox monks, of Orthodox prelates, attempted to depose Patriarch Damianos from uh, his see. Uh, I use uh, primary archival sources from the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, the Public Record Office, and the Jerusalem Orthodox uh, Patriarchate. Um, I consider this controversy to be uh, not only religious, but basically social and uh, political. Uh, that's why my, my primary uh, research uh, aim uh, is uh, to explore the interaction between the various political and religious agents, uh, which of course had conflicting uh, <clears throat> agendas and, and uh, strategic aims. Uh, I don't know if I have uh, much time to, to, to speak about uh, my paper. 
So I will just uh, say a few words uh, about um, uh, about the conclusion, namely that um, uh, I consider this crisis, which ended with the uh, with the uh, win of uh, of Patrick Damianos, namely that uh, the British. Uh, uh, mandatory authorities did not accept, did not recognize the deposition of Damianos, and uh, this uh, was they, their decision was based uh, on uh, the need to have uh, to cultivate positive relations with the Arab Orthodox congregation, which supported actually Damianos, and. Uh, that was one reason. The second reason is uh, was because the British uh, uh, would never allow uh, uh, the Greek intervention into the Patriarchate, the, I, I mean, uh, of the Greek state, <clears throat> because that would be a pretext for the French to uh, maintain uh, their uh, religious protectorate over the Catholics, which a state of affairs uh, of affairs which was unacceptable for uh, for the British. Uh, last, and I finish. I consider this uh, crisis of 1917-1918 the starting point of the uh, contemporary history of the modern history of uh, of the Patriarchate, uh, which. Uh, has uh, three main uh, features, namely the, the subordination of the patriarchate by state authorities, the Jordanian and then the Israelis, the British, the Jordanian and then the Israelis. The second feature is that uh, uh, its strategies, its, its finances were based on not on investing but on uh, selling or uh, leasing the vast real estate of the patriarchate uh, in Palestine and especially uh, within uh, in Jerusalem within and, and outside the walls uh, which is of course very important for uh, for what's happening uh, currently in Jerusalem and uh, third uh, it uh, the, the third feature is that uh, the continuous controversy between the Arab Orthodox congregation with the Greek establishment, uh, uh, which dominates uh, the, the religious institution, a dominance, of course, which is viewed by the Arab Orthodox as um, a, a type of cultural uh, imperialism. And I stop here, so sorry for... Uh, for uh, uh, for taking so much time to. Thank you, Kostas. Um, and thank you for giving a run through of, of all of the other papers in the um, issue. Uh, so now we will hear from two of the uh, contributors to the issue, other, of course, than, than, than Kostas with his own paper as well. Um, firstly, we'll hear from Laura Gerd, who is a chief researcher at the St. Petersburg Institute of History, part of the Russian Academy of Sciences. Her research is focused on Russian policy in the Christian East, 
the ecclesiastical means of soft power in the Ottoman Empire and the role of Russia in the competition uh, between the great powers in the, the Eastern question. Um, Laura. Uh, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, the organizers of this session and uh, the editors of Contemporary Levant, uh, um, Karen and Kostas and Sarah. Um, uh, and uh, I'm really happy to take part in this event, uh, which was uh, expected for a long time, in fact, uh, and uh, unfortunately delayed so many times. <laughs> Um, I'm presenting, uh, representing the Russian uh, side of the project, uh, and uh, um, in fact, um, uh, my article is um, uh, just a presentation of a big program which we carry out uh, together with uh, Moscow colleagues, uh, um, working on the archival sources uh, on the Christian Russian policy in the Christian East. Uh, and uh, our research uh, um, is already for many years in uh, the Russian policy in the Balkans, in Greece, in uh, the Patriarchates of Constantinople, of Alexandria, and uh, the last uh, three years in Antiochia, uh, Patriarchate of Antiochia, so it's Syria. Uh, and um, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, the main uh, um, uh, target of this work is first of all to represent the archives which are uh, not very well known though they are absolutely available during the last 30 years at least uh, probably the reason is uh, uh, not the unavailability but uh, just the language because uh, very often we can hear from other colleagues that uh, uh, yes we would like to work in your archives but we don't understand Russian and so on um, Oh, well, so uh, our target is uh, uh, to, uh, to find out what we have, to systematize it and to make additions. And um, uh, a couple of years ago, we edited a volume on the Russian uh, policy in the Patriarchate of Alexandria, and now we're preparing uh, maybe two volumes on the Patriarchate of Antiochia. Um, the Russian policy in, um, in Syria started actively uh, since um, uh, maybe later than of the other great powers uh, in the end of the 1830s. Uh, and uh, um, the activities are um, related to one uh, prominent name of uh, Bishop Porfirio Spensky, who traveled in uh, Syria in the 1840s. And uh, he was the first to bring information and uh, uh, to uh, create a conception of the Russian ecclesiastical policy and the means of this policy uh, the uh, uh, ecclesiastical level as political force, as, as soft power in uh, uh, Syria and Palestine. Uh, later, he became the chief of the first Russian ecclesiastical mission in uh, uh, Jerusalem, which worked uh, till uh, the Crimean War, till 1853. Um, uh, the second half of the 19th century brought new events, and uh, here we should underline, of course, the uh, affair of the uh, Melkit community uh, who were ready to um, enter orthodoxy with Russian help. Uh, and uh, uh, after a lot of uh, other uh, directions of policy, uh, and uh, uh, very important is the creation of the uh, Orthodox Palestine Society, which started actively working uh, since its organization in 1882. Um, uh, uh, today we already heard uh, uh, the colleagues mentioned the activities in 
the educational sphere because the Palestine Society created a whole network of uh, schools about 10,000, 11,000 children studied in this uh, um, Arab primary schools. Uh, and um, uh, till the First World War, they were very active and uh, financed, of course, by Russia. Uh, and uh, um, what is important to understand, uh, now, what was the difference and what was the common features between this policy of Russia and the policies of the concurrence of England and Fran Great Britain and France? Um, uh, and uh, whether Russia was uh, strong enough to uh, counterattack the policy of the competitors. Um, and uh, um, what is the big difference, of course, is that uh, the Russian policy stopped completely uh, with the First World War. And uh, after the First World War, it, uh, another period came and uh, uh, with completely different targets. And though some methods remained the same, but the accents were, of course, different. Um, and uh, that is why my research uh, ends with the uh, First World War and with the Russian Revolution of 1917, uh, though some traces can be, um, uh, some um, lines can be traced uh, after the uh, fall of Tsarist Russia. Um, so, uh, as I'm limited <laughs> by time, thank you very much, and uh, I would be glad to answer any questions. Thank you very much, Laura. and. Um, yeah, as as Costas mentioned before, um, in terms of the other articles, there is a, a fascinating pairing in terms of um, particularly the question of Russian influence, where we have Laura coming from the Russian archives and and looking at the question in terms of um, diplomacy and politics from the Russian end and and how it's seen from the Russian archives, and then Sadia Aksus's article, which looks at some of the Palestinian products um, of Russian missionary education uh, and the way that Palestinians experienced and uh, made use of the education that they received um, in some of these uh, various institutions uh, that the um, Russian Empire paid for uh, across um, the, the Levantine part of the Ottoman Empire. So finally, uh, we have Dimitrios Kontogorgis, who is a lecturer at, in, sorry, in modern Greek history at the University of Cyprus in Nicosia. His research interests and copious publications lie in modern Greek, Balkan and Mediterranean political and social history, the history of diaspora and migration, and the economic and social history of Greece and Southeastern Europe, in particular during the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, Dimitrios, please. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I would like firstly to thank uh, the organizing committee, Karen, uh, Costas and Sarah, uh, for the opportunity to participate in the special issue of Contemporary Levant and in this webinar. I'm, I'm very glad that it takes place because it is a wonderful occasion for us uh, to discuss about subjects that uh, uh, I believe interest us all and uh, they reveal a more complicated and tangled history of the Levant, including Muslims, Jews, Christians, which can allow us move further from sectarian concepts and narratives. Now, some thoughts about my contribution to the volume, which I believe uh, is probably uh, the most, um, let's say, the one that uh, deals with uh, 
the oldest period, the, the early 1840s until the 60s. Uh, the title is The Greek Discovery of Syria, the 1860 Civil War in Lebanon and Damascus and Greek Public Opinion. I try to explore in this article the image, or better, the images of the various ethnic, religious, and linguistic groups of Greater Syria in Greece from the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s until 1860, concentrating on the 1860 civil war. I approach the subject from three different uh, viewpoints uh, that of the Greek consuls in Syria, uh, of the members of the Greek government in Athens, and of the Greek press mainly in Athens and Hermopolis, the country's main port at the time. What could be considered, I hope, as a novel uh, contribution to the historiography of the, uh, on, on the relatively understudied 19th century relationship between Greeks and Syria is the sources used. To be more precise, I traced that the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs consular reports from Syria of that period, which had been rarely or not at all used by historians up to now, uh, with some notable exceptions, mainly Maria Litina, uh, about the 19th century, uh, Kostas Papastathis and Angelos Dalahanis, uh, mainly about Palestine and the 20th century. Um, this material owes its existence to the very dense consular network of the Greek, that the Greek government established in the region uh, after the foundation of the independent uh, Greek state in the early 1830s, already since 1834, uh, a consulate at Beirut, uh, a consular agency at Damascus, uh, at Tripoli, and uh, elsewhere. Certainly, Greeks had forged uh, already traditionally strong ties with the region, due both to the presence of Greek and Greek-speaking uh, Orthodox clerics of the Patriarchate of Antioch, and also the merchants, uh, residing in the uh, in the porch. What I believe is unique in the uh, perspective of the sources I examined uh, is that it comes from a state that 30 years earlier uh, was part of the Ottoman Empire, from a state which found itself on the geographical boundary between the West and the East, Europe and the Levant, a state which had formulated in the second half, uh, in the second third of the 19th century, an ideology based on irredentism, the liberation of the unredeemed uh, brothers, the so-called great idea, Megali idea, but also espousing a very ambitious and fluid mission to act as a bearer of civilization, of European civilization in the East. It is tempting to see in the various reports of the consuls where they stress their duty towards the locals, a Greek equivalent of a mission civilisatrice and may be fruitful to compare the Greek activity with the one of other foreign missions. Moreover, despite the traditional religious ties, the viewpoint of the consuls is secular, is uh, earnestly secular. Residing there, the consuls' knowledge and understanding of the indigenous population was certainly broader, much broader and often more profound than those of the politicians in Athens and the journalists of Greece with a few exceptions. Yet they would at times yield to the simplistic categories of religious sectarianism. One can detect in their approach orientalistic influences traced in the depiction of Syria and Syrians as barbarians, non-civilized anymore. The Greek government, however, did not seem to appreciate the significance of their analysis. This is something I wanted to show on my paper. Syria was too far off to inspire serious concern 
and the popular generalization of an incessant struggle of Muslims against Christians sufficed for the needs of her policy in the region. In any case, the main enemy for the Greek government were basically not the Druzes of uh, Mount Lebanon or the different Muslim or Christian sects of the region, but the Ottoman Empire. The Greek press followed suit with uh, a vengeance, I would say. The bottom line in, of the numerous articles on the massacres was that a bloodthirsty Ottoman Empire threatened the Christian brothers in the East, and Greeks as the bearers of civilization were there to offer help and guidance. And this was at the root of the Greek response to the civil war in Lebanon, mainly the Greek humanitarian intervention with the dispatch of warships and the relocation of refugees in Greece. Of course, an archive has also gaps and blind spots, and it hides as much as it reveals. The documents from the 1830s, 1860s at the Diplomatic and Historical Archive of the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs include mainly consular reports, the correspondence with the local authorities, usually in France, letters of clergymen, uh, mostly of bishops, uh, in particular of the Jerusalem Patriarchate, and a relatively few letters or petitions from the Lydia. The latter, despite being written in Greek and or French, are an interesting source, nevertheless, since they reveal the aspirations of a part of the local population and can complement or even undermine, undermine notions and ideas expressed in the consular uh, reports. I could say that they reveal the, the local population as having agency and not as passive victims of the circumstances. And last but not least, because I understand this uh, webinar can give us information and data on the resources concerning Syria in Greek archives, I would just like to add uh, that the Foreign Ministry of Historical, uh, the Foreign Ministry Historical and Diplomatic Archive includes also interesting material concerning other matters uh, relative to the Levant. For example, the often fraught relationship between the Patriarchate of Antioch and the Greco-Catholics of Halep and Aleppo, especially during the 1860s and 1870s, and an effort uh, uh, by uh, at least a group of the Melkites to uh, rejoin the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. Uh, I suppose uh, uh, this has uh, been also uh, analyzed by Laura Gerd. And we can also discover uh, uh, data on the organization of the Greek school, uh, Greek Arabic school at Beirut through letters and reports of the local consuls. And uh, among other institutions in Greece, I, could like, I would like to mention the Gennadius Library in uh, Athens, uh, which holds an interesting collection named after Haji Pan Theodosio, a Greek merchant in Constantinople, Istanbul, and containing letters from the Patriarchate of uh, Antioch of the 1830s, concerning basically business transactions. And uh, the National Historical Museum contains the correspondence, and this is an important archive, of the committee which was founded to aid the refugees from Beirut and Lebanon in the 1860s. Uh, last but not least, relevant material is also to be found in the general state archives of Greece, which holds a significant amount of consular reports uh, and other material from Beirut and Damascus. I think I, I'm okay with the time, so thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Dimitrios. Um, so yes, between Greek archives and Russian archives, if there's anybody in the audience looking for 
linguistically complex PhD or other research projects, um, there's plenty of exciting archives for you to think about. Um, and I, I have to say, um, after I attended a uh, conference in Armenia a few years ago, um, I've been firmly convinced that one of the things that Anglophone Middle Eastern studies is hugely lacking is people who can work on Russian archives material um, and 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 um, speak um, uh, on a much more equal level with Russian researchers. Um, so. Uh, I guess, um, given the state of humanities funding, maybe this is a bad time to call for that kind of thing, but certainly something we need to keep on fighting on, um, as well as, of course, the importance of um, uh, regional languages um, in uh, studying the Middle East. Um, so uh, thank you very much to all of the speakers. We uh, already have um, some uh, very interesting questions. Um, I'm just going to acknowledge a couple of nice um, hellos and uh, expressions of solidarity from uh, Rene Hatta at uh, in Amman and Gabriel Polly. Um, and then to go straight into the questions, I think this is one which um, I think any of the speakers might like to answer if they feel they've got things that they can pull out from their archive experience. So this is from Roxana Maria Aras. My question is connected to the nature of the archives consulted and to their methodological potential. I was wondering if these archives afford the construction of multisensorial historical narratives on Arab Christians, ones that take into consideration sound, taste, and the olfactory materiality. I rely here on Ziad Fahmi's call to create more sound historical narratives on the past. Um, so speakers, taste, sound, smell, sensory elements to your archives, does anything spring to mind? Uh, if uh, I may, um, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, we are looking at all the perplexity of archive sources and uh, um, uh, I, um, uh, we have uh, different uh, kinds of sources. We have uh, diaries, journals, um, correspondence, uh, um, and even in the official reports of uh, the diplomatic representatives, there are so many details on the life of uh, the Orient uh, uh, and uh, on the relations with uh, different groups of populations and so on. Uh, one example, uh, during the last uh, maybe already 15 years, where uh, uh, editing volume by volume the journals of Antonin Kapustin, who was uh, um, the chief of the Russian church first in Athens during 10 years, after in uh, uh, Constantinople during five years, and after for 30 years in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, uh, day by day he was writing with whom, uh, whom he met, what he was speaking, what he was eating, uh, what impressions of life he had. Of course, it's a very personal source. And all these personal sources, we should look at them through uh, double glasses, uh, because uh, um, you understand, um, as well as at all others, of course. Um, uh, but the tendencies uh, we can smell, we really can smell the uh, uh, flavor of the streets of the towns where he walked uh, and uh, see, uh, looked, um, uh, we can, um, uh, in fact, uh, films may be made uh, after these sources. Uh, uh, I'm, <laughs> it's one of my ideas for my retirement. <laughs> uh, 
but the sources are very different. The Russian sources, well, the Russian archives, the, their volume is maybe compared with the uh, National Archives in uh, Kew Gardens. Uh, when I came first time to Kew Gardens, I felt myself as if I am in the um, archive of the Minister of Foreign Affairs in, in Moscow, because uh, it's the same volumes on Turkey, on uh, different um, uh, consulates, embassies, of, uh, um, and um, all archives of the former great powers in France is the same, and in uh, Vienna the same, of course, in uh, the archives of the Vet they are so big and so uh, different in uh, um, you should uh, just dig there and uh, um, uh, and concerning the methodology well methodology is a very general word of course but um, of course the, first of all we should make a, a classification uh, and it's already made by our predecessors but uh, uh, anyway uh, in any kind of archives we can find a lot about everyday life of course thank you <laughs> I just wanted to add something, maybe um, the sound uh, power, because we were just uh, looking into this cultural uh, influence and uh, diplomacy idea, um, was a chapter of uh, the book uh, with Paul Grave on uh, exactly what Laura explained from the Catholic side. So sometimes this material um, history was not at the center because we started with a desire and we were obsessed by, you know, uh, through you silencing the past, we couldn't find. And suddenly you are not looking for it and you are in Saint-Anne and you encounter a bunch of archives of the fanfare from Saint-Anne, which apparently might be very Franco-French. And then you cross-analyze with... Uh, the um, Franciscan archives, and then some memoirs. So uh, in this material uh, history, uh, at least at our very humble level, for the moment, the sound uh, history was much easier than the smell, for example, because it was not at the heart of our research. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to say is... Um, we have to tackle the fact that we need to counter uh, the fact that many archives disappeared in 48. So the, the very last example I found uh, for sound, for example, uh, when you have names of people who rented uh, houses in new neighborhoods before 48, and you realize that uh, they write in some of private memoir that they were listening to this type of uh, Austrian, uh, let's say, uh, classical music from 38. Then you can trace another type of sound history because you see they have been listening to the same music, Jews, uh, Palestinian together, sometimes very punctually sharing their love for uh, some of the classical music. Um, olfactory, I will answer later about a French uh, researcher because of the time. I think it's quite good to have gotten a whole hour through without speaking while muted. I think that, that's progress. Um, so I just want to add into this question of archives, another question from Const uh, Konstantinos um, Politis. 
you've mentioned Greek and Russian archives, but aren't the Ottoman Turkish archives at least as relevant, if not vital, for understanding the late 19th to early 20th century Syrian Palestinian socio political situation? Long sentence. Uh, does anybody want to comment on that aspect of the archival question here? Uh, just um, to make a comment, if I may. Uh, well, obviously, the local archives, uh, whether written in uh, Arabic or uh, Ottoman, uh, are very important. And I think this is something that we know from many decades of research uh, in Middle Eastern studies. But um, to be honest, at least uh, uh, for me, uh, it's pretty obviously that I cannot call <laughs> <laughs> tackle with us uh, this material and so um, because exactly because there are so many archives in many languages uh, this sort of uh, uh, interaction and cooperation uh, and dialogue is uh, so important uh, not everybody can uh, tackle with uh, every source available I think it's obvious thank you I could add to yeah. that Sarah from uh, sorry yeah, and yeah, Costas, and yeah, maybe because he's been waiting a little while. Ah, no, it's okay. Well, uh, thank you. Sorry, sorry, Karen. Uh, I, will, I just wanted to add to what Dimitris just said that uh, um, the Ottoman archives, of course, they are extremely useful for our work. Uh, however, these are official documents, so we we can uh, read the decision of the sublime port concerning the question of uh, uh, the Greek-Arab uh, Orthodox controversy. Or we can uh, read the Berat of, uh, patriarch, of a patriarch or the, uh, the regulations of, uh, of the Melkite or the Orthodox patriarchy. The archives of uh, the Greek of the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or the archive, a religious archive uh, such as the Patriarchate of Constantinople or the Patriarchate of Jerusalem, will give us more information about what's uh, happening on the ground. Uh, so, uh, of course, the Ottoman archives are extremely important uh, as far as the institutional, the legal aspect is concerned. Uh, the diplomatic archives uh, are, uh, to, uh, as far as I'm concerned, concerned, important for the everyday pol uh, politics, uh, religious politics uh, that uh, took place in Jerusalem or Antioch. Can I add a few stuff on the, how we pro proceeded, you know, the, the, the behind the scene, this special issue? How do you tackle that? As editors, uh, we contacted, for example, on the Ottoman archives, the center in Paris, Setobac. So my colleagues, uh, you know, from there, to see before inviting someone to write like Dimitrios when he applied, we thought, do we have something from an Ottoman perspective on this? And this was very interesting from a methodological point of view, because I personally also do not uh, master uh, Ottoman Turkish, and that's why I'm not a specialist of the 19th century. 
to hear from colleagues that this topic was not covered, at least from what they had seen in the catalog. So this is how we started to draw a map of this special issue to be sure that we would cover some of the um, archival gap. And to answer to the question, uh, to the comment of uh, Michael Martin, hello, that is online, um, some of these, of course, were not destroyed, but lost, stolen, etc. in 48. And um, we conceived that as an opportunity to look uh, further on other type of issues, for example, the the conference we are preparing with Sarah on vocabularies of tourism to see where we could progress from these archival gaps on others covering um, neighborhood or a very specific uh, topic we missed in this uh, special issue. So I would say um, if we look into the special issue, it's very much linked to previous work from Crossroad and the one to come to try to cover, you know, like a puzzle on aspects. Thank you, Karen. Um, so uh, we have um, a small list further down if there are people who are particularly interested um, of other uh, Greek scholars who've worked um, on specifically the, the Ottoman archives. Um, and just to wrap up uh, this discussion of archives as a um, as a topic, um, we have this uh, uh, comment from uh, Michael Martin that I think many of us uh, would endorse the, the idea that we need to be bold enough, um, also bearing in mind Profique's comments at the start of this um, session, that some archives are not lost, they are stolen, they are looted, um, and that um, access to them is controlled uh, or denied um, for reasons that I think we're all um, largely aware of. Um, okay, so um, going back to some of the earlier questions, uh, I think to some extent, uh, Karen, Demetrios and uh, Kostas, you get to have a little uh, break now because we have lots of interest in Russia. Um, so to start off with, so Laura, um, I hope you're uh, all ready to go start off with, um, I think to some extent this was already answered, but um, from Fadi Abudib, is the absence of Russian schools in the Levant today compared with American, British, French, etc., related to the collapse of the old regime in Russia? Um, and then um, Fadi goes on to mention some of the Arab NAFTA leaders who were educated particularly in the Russian school at Nazareth, and that's what Sadia Agzus's uh, article um, goes much more deeply into and some of her other work. So there's that little question about schools, um, Laura. Um, two questions to you then from Luke uh, Yeske. Um, what distinguished Russian policy in Antioch? How was it different from policy in the patriarchs of Jerusalem, Alexandria or Constantinople? Do you see the IPPO, and if you wouldn't mind telling the rest of us what that is, if because I don't think every, everybody in the audience is going to know, an extension of Russian state policy, or did it pursue its own goals? And then much further down from Carol Palmer, um, a question about the Russian Orthodox Missions School for young for girls and young women in Beit Jala. 
I understand that the Russian mission was the first to educate girls and young women, training them as village teachers. Is this true? Um, I guess this is in comparison with um, missions from Britain, France, etc. Is it possible to say more about this Beit Jala school and its background and the impact on the young women who were trained there? Uh, thank you very much for the questions. Uh, I will start with the first one. <clears throat> of course, the, all the activities of the Russian philanthropic uh, and ecclesiastical institutions uh, in uh, the Near East and the Middle East uh, was stopped with uh, the Russian Revolution and the collapse of the old regime. Uh, because the uh, Soviet state uh, uh, completely rejected the old uh, levels of influence and first of all the ecclesiastical one. Um, uh, maybe methodologically, but just uh, on a structural level, um, uh, the communist idea replaced in partly the uh, orthodox idea in Russian policy during the Soviet period. Uh, but this is just a suggestion. It's not uh, the topic of uh, my research. Um, uh, anyway, the, uh, of course, uh, all Russian schools were closed uh, soon after, well, they survived during the first years of the First World War, but as they were financed, completely financed by, uh, from Russia, they couldn't survive uh, for years. And uh, um, there is a huge correspondence in the archives on this topic, and uh, we see that uh, by 1915, they already uh, uh, struggled for survival, and finally they um, one by one, they were closed very uh, uh, in um, one or two years later and uh, stopped their existence. Uh, of course, there were many people who studied in these schools and in the beginning of the 90s, when uh, people from Russia first uh, came to Palestine, to Syria, they met, still met old people who were studying, uh, started their studies in these Russian schools. Um, and many famous people, of course, in Sadi Agzus uh, studied this uh, uh, side of the topic. Um, <clears throat> um, so, um, uh, the second question to look, yes, um, um, uh, well, uh, <laughs> of course, it's uh, a big uh, issue uh, what distinguishes Russian policy in Antioch. Uh, in general, the policy in all uh, patriarchs uh, had the um, uh, common feature that uh, uh, the general um, idea was to support orthodoxy against uh, Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, uh, how to support it? Uh, this was the, uh, differ, uh, the um, uh, difficulty because uh, it was the diocesis of uh, uh, other churches. Uh, Russia couldn't interfere formally from point of canon law, couldn't interfere in the uh, life of other patriarchs. And that's why uh, the policy, the active policy was uh, partly blocked. It met a lot of um, obstacles. Uh, compared to the policy of the Catholics or the Protestants who acted in their, uh, within, uh, inside their own institutions. Uh, Russia didn't have such, an inst such institutions and uh, the Russian politicians, both ecclesiastical and um, civil, had to act uh, via the patriarchs uh, and uh, to send, for example, money to the Greek patriarchs, uh, patriarchs and uh, after to try to influence the distribution of this money. Um, and uh, never could never trace whether this money is used for the purposes for what they were sent or not. 
um, um, what was the difference? Uh, in Jerusalem, the policy, of course, it is a separate and very special uh, topic. Um, uh, and but uh, there were many things in common between uh, the uh, policy in Jerusalem and in Antioch because it was a policy aimed at uh, supporting the local Arab population uh, and um, supported um, uh, and trying uh, for a long period trying to cooperate with the Greek prelates and finally uh, trying to support the Arabs in. Uh, electing their own uh, bishops and finally it was uh, in Antioch where the Russians managed to um, support an Arab to become a patriarch in the end of the 19th century. Uh, maybe this is the main difference that it was the only um, um, oriental sea where the Russian policy had uh, really uh, a big uh, success in uh, um, uh, rising uh, an Arab patriarch on the uh, Antioch Antiochian Sea. Um, and during the last uh, uh, 14 years uh, uh, before the um, starting, uh, before the beginning of the First World War, uh, uh, Russia almost completely financed the Patriarchate of Antioch. I don't know to what percent exactly, but it was uh, uh, during uh, the um, Gregory the Fourth, for example, um, uh, during his reign. There were huge sums of money which were sent directly from Russia to support Orthodoxy and to support the Patriarchate of Antioch. This was not the case with Jerusalem, and of course not the case of uh, Constantinople and, and Alexandria. Mm, uh, well, uh, and the second one about the Palestinian society. Mm, the Palestinian society officially, it was a private organization uh, and it was uh, not uh, financed from the state budget. It was financed by um, um, personal uh, private donations uh, until 1912. Uh, uh, and uh, it has three main goals. The first was uh, to uh, support uh, um, Russian pilgrims. The second, uh, um, research work in Palestine, mainly history and archaeology. And the third, of course, the schools. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it was, uh, uh, it, uh, was linked to Russian policy and it served Russian policy. Uh, and uh, the Tsar Nicholas II was a member of the Palestine Society and many of the high officials and uh, diplomatic figures. Uh, um, so um, being a private organization, at the same time, it served, of course, uh, Russian um, political views. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and one example for um, the Russian schools in uh, Syria and Palestine, as they needed a lot of money and the society was private, by 1910, it was a very uh, big problem how to finance them. And uh, at that time, there was a lack of financing and uh, the question was raised maybe to close most of them. Uh, and finally, uh, finally, uh, a decision was taken already uh, with the um, participation of um, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs that uh, uh, since that moment, uh, uh, the schools should receive governmental financing from the state budget because their existence is so important for Russian policy in these that uh, this cannot be stopped. <clears throat> 
uh, well, uh, so they go both. Uh, and uh, once I remember with Maria Litina, we were discussing uh, whether Russian uh, philanthropic activities and uh, donating money for churches, for schools, and uh, etc. Uh, was it uh, a philanthropic activity or it was pure political one? It goes together. You cannot say that uh, this is pure philanthropic, this is pure political. Of course, as everything in the Middle East goes together, uh, church goes together with politics. And uh, all the dip uh, diplomats, all the consuls in the East, they always stressed in every uh, dispatch that we cannot separate politics from church affairs. Everything goes together. And uh, of course, for Russia, uh, the ecclesiastical policy was a strong lever of influence uh, of this so-called soft power. Uh, Britain and France had much more um, opportunities uh, from uh, military side, financial opportunities, and maybe the main uh, weakness of Russian policy was that uh, Russia couldn't uh, invest so much money as France did in Syria. Uh, it was always the topic of discussion uh, that uh, well, we have good research works on uh, Fr French policy in Syria, how much, uh, what sums were invested in schools, in uh, um, uh, this Catholic uh, proselytism and so on. Uh, Russia couldn't compete materially. This was the weak point. Uh, and all the time we see increasing budgets uh, from France, from Britain, from Russia, which came both from private sources and from governmental sources. So hmm. where does this um, school in Beit Jala uh, uh, yes, uh, about in, in, this, in, in this question? Uh, to say the truth, the history of the schools, uh, Russian schools uh, in uh, Syria and Palestine uh, is uh, only uh, approached, but there, we don't have a serious uh, um, uh, fundamental research on the topic. Uh, because uh, the main archives are in Moscow, it is the fund of the Palestine Society, and it is only partly uh, published, partly uh, investigated. Uh, what I can say, um, uh, yes, it was uh, a seminary, uh, so-called, there were two seminaries, one was in uh, Nazareth for men and the other in Bejala for girls, for women, uh, which prepared uh, teachers for uh, village schools uh, and um, uh, local girls who studied there later became teachers. Um, and uh, uh, well, um, uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> to present the whole history of this school, you should uh, enter the archives again and study it page by page folio by folio, and after we can uh, uh, reconstruct the history. Um, uh, now we have fragments of this uh, uh, work, um, which is already done by our colleagues, but uh, yeah, this is the future, in fact. Uh, so that's, that's an Im important future project for somebody. Yes, in fact, it is a topic for maybe more than one um, doctor <laughs> physicist uh, to write the history of the educational enterprises, uh, Russian educational enterprises in Syria and Palestine. Um, um, yes, uh, interesting that, uh, of course, I think we've lost Laura. Okay, I was just then going to ask, I think probably one final question to kind of pull together again the various strands of this issue um, and I think 
from the perspective of both Dimitrios as a, as a contributor and of the editors. Um, I was wondering how you view the idea of um, cultural diplomacy as something that helps to clarify the kind of histories that um, you wanted to present in this issue. Um, and perhaps in particular, uh, how, how do you think um, using the idea of cultural diplomacy works when you're combining it with looking in particular at church histories? Caroline or Costas, perhaps first. Well, please, if... Uh, no, 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 you first. Well, there is, uh, there are two babies here, so it's, uh, <laughs> it might be better if you start. Anyway. Okay. Uh, like to? Uh, I uh, think... I'm very sorry, I had a problem with the internet, but I hope you, you continued without me. <laughs> no problem at all. Thank you. Um, a short answer. First of all, I, um, we are fully aware that the concept might look anachronical as it has been used and we could dig into that uh, after for, uh, Second World War and how can we uh, apply that to earlier period. What it does though if you take uh, the idea of exchange and all the variety of exchange via not only cultural agendas, policies, but also product and the way cultural product via uh, religious uh, actors have been defined as being efficient, and have been commented as uh, being rejected or reappropriated and transformed, then the concept is interesting, at least to be questioned. Um, and it brings uh, not only um, the cultural aspect that is always missing in this political uh, history or even uh, intellectual history of Palestine of that time. But also, um, I'm extremely tired, so the word is coming in French, uh, so when you decompartmentalize this uh, church um, history, where you used to have uh, one specific approach of one community or a kind of a geography, these cultural product object influences are binding together a, a more a global approach of the impact on the identification process of population we wanted to analyze, whether they are uh, from European countries at that time, or Russia, or uh, local uh, population. I can develop later. Uh, if Kostas cannot speak, then maybe uh, now, uh, Dimitrios, uh, what is your uh, view? 
<laughs> I would like to say that it's a very difficult uh, subject. And uh, the term uh, cultural diplomacy, of course, was not used by uh, the consuls in uh, the 1840s, 1850s. For them, it was uh, either a national or a, um, a, a philanthropic, uh, let's say, uh, mission. Uh, well, they, there is an interesting um, material when they compare the schools, the Orthodox schools, uh, at Damascus and in Lebanon uh, with the missionary schools. And for them, there you can see that they begin to understand the, the subject of uh, a, a different culture coming in the Arabic lands. And uh, for them, uh, it's shocking because they are Orthodox. They are very proud to be Orthodox. And they can see that the Catholic schools are better, the Protestant uh, academies are better, and so on. Uh, but uh, the problem is, and this is the problem of the archive, that we rarely have the opinion of the locals. We have the opinion, the concepts, uh, uh, the ideology uh, of uh, the people who came from Athens and became their um, uh, councils and so on. Even when we have material in Greek or in French from locals, from natives, usually they are clergy. And uh, that's... Um, it's, we, we have to deal with them in different ways. I mean, they, first of all, they are written in Greek, but were they originally written in Greek? For some material, we know that it was not because they say that it was, it is a translation from the Arabic, but we do not have, of course, the Arabic uh, uh, manuscript and so on, original. And this is also a problem. And there is also a problem of um, conjecture. When they speak, these people, towards, they address the consular authorities. What is the discourse they advance, the, the terminology they use? Uh, for me, because it is just the beginning of a research, there are, these are questions to, I need to deal with. Uh, but then I think that uh, reading and studying about cultural diplomacy and uh, in the 20th century can be also revealing for the 19th century. Though I must admit, now I'm not so sure how. <laughs> I believe it would be the, really. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Demetrius. And I think that's an excellent way to end the discussion. Um, Taufik, would you just like to uh, close things um, on behalf of CBRL? By all means, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of our participants today in this discussion. It's been truly a fascinating discussion, and I look forward to reading that edition myself. Uh, of course, that's an admission that I haven't done so myself yet, but it's certainly a very fascinating subject and with a lot of details, and uh, I'm sure a lot of our audience members appreciated it. Uh, throughout the course of this webinar, there have been, uh, it, it, we topped out around 85 or 90 different people, so that's a great turnout for an event like this, especially in these busy times. So I'd like to thank everybody, especially the, uh, the, the, the panelists and the special editors, and also our chief editor, Dr. Sarah Irving of Contemporary Levant. Thank you to our audience for participating and, and uh, attending today this webinar hosted by the Council for British Research in the Levant from Jerusalem. Uh, you can check out uh, uh, what we do uh, on our website, www.cbrl.ac.uk. A, a video recording of this should be uh, posted soon on our website, and you can also find previous different webinars that we've done here, as well as all the other activities that we do. Uh, other than that, have a safe night, and thank you for attending.
Take care. Thank you.